Stick with this flame, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now we have got on an amazing guest today. He is a pastor, he is a speaker. He's got a YouTube channel, and he is also the author of several books, including the most recent one, Does Christianity Still Make Sense? And this is Bobby Conway. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Zuby. Thanks for having me on. No doubt, Bobby. It's a pleasure. I've done a brief intro there, but for people who are not familiar with you, please introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, you bet. Uh, You said it. My name's Bobby Conway. Uh, Just my story in a nutshell is I grew up in California. Never heard the gospel till I was 19, uh, ended up becoming a Christian, desiring to get two questions answered. What do I do with my guilt and what's the purpose of life? And I was playing college baseball. My teammate took me to hear an evangelist by the name of Greg Laurie, and I resonated with him. He used words like dude, cool, bro, and stoked. Uh, you know, he didn't get up and, you know, speak in a weird language. He didn't preach in, you know, all kinds of ornate where he was just casual, laid back, and it connected. And he pointed me to Jesus. And I felt like through Christ, my guilt could be settled and purpose in life could be discovered. And in the past, uh, I was turning to drugs and alcohol, uh, abusing it and trying to find myself through LSD trips and all, all kinds of stuff like that. And I was empty and I'd collected a lot of guilt through promiscuous living, cheating on my girlfriend, uh, lying, uh, stealing, using alcohol, drugs, you name it. So the only thing I had going for me, I felt like was baseball. And I ended up uh, placing my faith in Christ, still struggling with alcohol addiction for about a year and a half. And once that kind of got eliminated and removed in my life, I uh, ended up going to about 400 plus meetings of sobriety in my first year at age of 21. I was one of the young cats in those meetings, and uh, I came alive uh, getting that addiction shaken off. And I started sharing with people everywhere I went about Jesus and just wanted to be in full-time ministry. And so I uh, would start that preparation and move on and became obsessed with studying and learning and would get earn a you know, bachelor's degree in Bible. And then I want to figure out the Bible. So I get a theology degree, a master's in that to figure that out. And then I wanted to figure out theology better. So I got a doctorate in apologetics to understand my theology. And then I wanted to understand my apologetics better. And I went and got a PhD in philosophy. And I found myself somewhere along the line after being married many years to my beautiful wife, Heather, with two kids, thrown into a crisis of faith where I thought, man, am I going to walk away from this whole thing? And uh, I truly was a near apostate and I found my way out of the dark night of the soul. And that's a little bit of my story. And Does Christianity Still Make Sense? comes out April 24th with Tyndale Publishing. And I'm excited to share that story uh, with readers. Man, there is so much there to dive into. So let's let's do it in order, man. Tell me what it was like growing up in California. What was your childhood like? You know, I would say childhood Zuby was pretty cool. Uh, You know, as a young kid, I remember I got to, I mean, I get to live in Laguna Beach 
California. My parents had a place you could watch the sunset, uh, see Catalina Island. Uh, man, back in 1977 or so when we moved in there, Zuby, uh, 500 bucks a month. Imagine an ocean view in Southern California for 500 bucks a month, bro. I mean, it was great. I'd say by the time I got to junior high, I really started noticing some heavy anxiety and I didn't even know how to put a finger on it, but I would just sit in class and my palms would be sweaty. I would feel anxious. I'd be worrying about things that weren't going to happen. I had irrational fears. And if I was able to kind of understand it, I mean, what was going on was I had an anxiety problem, <laughs> you know, and I wanted to contribute to world worry on a daily basis. And I did. And uh, I also had a bad case of ADD, so I couldn't pay attention in class, struggled with impulse. And so that's why I think I ended up turning to alcohol at such a young age, 15, uh, to assuage that anxiety, to deal with some of the, uh, you know, worry that I had and the ADD. It just felt like liquid gold. Problem is, is when I started doing that, uh, you know, I was in high school in Northern California at this time. And man, it was just dark. I can remember, you know, again, I mean, I never heard the gospel till I was 19. So it wasn't like church was something on every corner. Uh, and my friends were just partiers, man. I mean, three of my very close friends have, have already died from drugs and alcohol. I've done the funeral of one of them. One this past year, couldn't get clean off the heroin and finally did a little bit, but then congestive heart failure. So God plucked me out of that. A dark culture, and I'm so thankful. But I can say that California, it, you know, I enjoyed a lot of uh, fun for as an athlete. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of popularity, uh, but I had a lot of emptiness uh, in my life, and uh, my lying and all that stuff as a kid just caused great problems with my home life, and I was totally uneducated. So that's the crazy thing about my journey toward being a Christian apologist is I couldn't even pass the test to get in the military. I failed to ASVAB three times to get in the military. You need a 31 to get in the Marine Corps. That's where I wanted to go. Well, the third time I got a 27. So the army offered me a waiver. You got a 28. You needed to get in the army as an infantryman. So they gave me a waiver. And then I failed the physical for crying out loud. So <laughs> my life was, was, was a bit shoddy over there. I got to say, bro, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for growing up in California uh, and I'm thankful at least that the story of pain that, that I went through, a lot of it to my own uh, making, has allowed me to relate to people on a wide spectrum. Understood. So I guess from what you've said about not hearing the gospel until you were 19, I guess that no, so no one, no one in your family had any type of faith or religious inclination at all? No, I think if you were, you know, it's interesting, like my dad grew up Catholic he ended up going through a divorce. So he was kind of, you know, excommunicated in a sense from the church back in the day. Uh, my mom grew up Protestant. And so the story was they couldn't agree on, uh, you know, where to take me to church and my younger brother. So they just didn't go. Uh, but they didn't talk to me about Jesus or about faith issues. So it was kind of like, hey, we grew up this way. This is what we are. We can't agree as mom and dad, so we're not going to go. And that was kind of the end of it. Uh, I dropped into a Catholic church a few times with my grandparents, but I went for the maple peanut donuts. 
which were pretty good, but I didn't understand what was going on in the Catholic service. I mean, I was so unchurched, Zuby, that, you know, I was walking around, everybody was saying, peace be with you. And I thought they were saying, pleased to meet you. So I was walking around going, yeah, pleased to meet you, pleased to meet you. You know, I was like, what's with the, what's with the guy with the diaper on a cross? I mean, and it just didn't make sense, the experience. So yeah, it was odd. Yeah, that that's so interesting. Uh, the reason I uh, the reason I find it so curious is because um, you know, I don't know how much you know of my story, but I mean, I I grew up in Saudi Arabia um from the wow. age of 1. So, you know, technically I was in a completely Islamic country, but I grew up very much in the faith and you know, going to church. It wasn't every Sunday, it was every Friday because mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia the weekend is Thursday and Friday instead of Saturday and and Sunday. Oh, so it's kind of yeah, so it, it's kind of fascinating how someone can grow up in a country which is technically predominantly Christian, but be completely isolated away from it for so long, whereas someone could grow up in a country which is 99% of right. another religion, yet grow up surrounded by um, a lot of Christians and going to church and things like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the exact point I'm making there, but it's kind of a, an interesting observation of how the world is not as yeah yeah how it's not as clear-cut as one might think in terms of people's different backgrounds and experiences so you sounds like you so you got caught up in a lot of stuff with you know drinking drugs all that kind of stuff in your in your teenage years and then you come into your early 20s and it sounds like you were looking for something and you found that so can you tell me more about hearing about the gospel for the first time and perhaps even more importantly, what was it that, what was it that convinced you? What was it that made you go from living this totally secular life and not understanding it at all to going actually not only, not only am I am I interested in this, but this is something that is true, and this is something that I ultimately want to dedicate my life to. Yeah. So I believed in God, but I just didn't know who God was. Um, I, I I didn't understand, you know what all that entailed, you know? So I think I would have believed in a creator, but I didn't know if, you know, I was going to be reincarnated. Probably the one thing that never made any sense to me and really not even in my doubts was atheism. It just felt really, truly unintelligible uh, just to think that all this, you know, snapped into existence, you know, out of nothing, uh, and then also the the cost of what you have to deny. You have to deny every prayer that's been answered, every religious experience that's ever been had, every so-called providential leading, every so-called miracle, every so-called heal, I mean, healing, uh, every so-called you know near-death experience. You have to deny every single person's experience. I just the, that just seems like a lot of hubris. Uh, to stand in the face of all of that. I can see standing on agnosticism going, I'm just not really sure, but just to adamantly say you're all wrong. And every, every answer to prayer, it's all wrong. It just didn't make sense. Uh, But I would say what was great with Christianity is it did make sense of my guilt, like that, you know, that there is something that needs to be, you know, atoned for like we have our own justice system and so we get justice we get when there's a wrongdoing that there has to be an accounting 
Well, why wouldn't it be the same for the creator of the cosmos? Why wouldn't he have some sort of accounting? But it was mind boggling to think that he actually paid my price uh, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins uh, because God so loved the world. Uh, that was overwhelming to me uh, to think about my shame and my guilt. I mean, you know, all the times I cheated on my girlfriend and the guilt that I carried for doing that as a kid, uh, the lying with my parents, the just all the stupid stuff that I got involved in to think that he forgives me and he loves me. That was really exciting news. And then to think that out of that gospel love uh, could ignite a purpose for my life. So, you know, I, I like to say God first revealed himself to me, then he revealed me to myself. I, I couldn't understand who I was until I understood who he was. And in understanding who he was, I came to understand more of who I was. And the reason I was so lost and confused is I was trying to discover who I was apart from who he who he was. And so that brought about a great connection to turn some lights on. But really, the problem with being young and coming to understand Christ is you often get saved and you don't even know what questions to ask. So I had a couple questions. What do I do with my guilt and what's my purpose? But later down the road where the doubts started to kick in, it was in regards to, well, what if I got it wrong? Like, what if I didn't properly think through this thing? How do I know in light of all the other world religions and belief options that are out there? What if I prematurely committed to something and, you know, just hope I got it right? And so I started getting a little bit paranoid along the way that, you know, maybe I needed to rethink this thing through a little bit. Where did you first hear the gospel? What was the, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what was the process? Yeah. So it sounds like you, you, you never sort of considered yourself a, a true atheist. It was more just like, mm. I think there's some type of creator out there, maybe Correct. the universe or something, but I don't know what it is. Um, I'm just curious at that moment in your early twenties, I guess two questions. Number one, who or where did you first hear the gospel from? And then what was the process? Was it just, did it, did it click immediately or mm -hmm. was there, was there something, was there a process you had to go through for it to make, for sense. It to make sense? Because um, I, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who up until the age of say 20 or so hadn't heard this. And then I'm now introduced to this idea. Um, I imagine knowing myself that I would be very, I'd probably be intrigued, but simultaneously very skeptical. So I'm just wondering if you can transport yourself back to Bobby at 20, 19, 20 years old, however it was, how did you process that all? Yeah, that's good. Cause I, I was kind of an ambiguous theist, uh, but I would uh, say the way it worked is I had a teammate named Cade. We still keep in touch to this day. And he is the one that led me to the Lord. Uh, and he did so uh, you know, he took me to hear Greg Gloria at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, the movie, The Jesus Revolution uh, that came out. Well, that is the church where Chuck Smith was a pastor and Greg Glory uh, is a well-known evangelist and he'd speak there on Monday nights. But my teammate, um, so he leveraged that church as a place to kind of put me under the teaching of God's word. But the process was one in which, you know, he tells me that I asked a ton of questions and so I was very um, inquisitive with them. I asked a lot of questions. Uh, so it was a process. 
I, I don't know exactly how long, but it, under a year from when I met him uh, to, you know, me giving my life to Christ. Um, but that came with visiting church, asking lots of questions, watching the way that he lived his life um, as well, and just seeing the difference that I, I saw in him in, in little ways compared to the kind of community I had. Um, and he too talked about God in a way that wasn't a turnoff to me, uh, but I liked his confidence too. Like he just kind of believed and he just laid it out there and, and I, he didn't apologize for it. And I'm thankful that he didn't. Cause I think a lot of times people feel like in order to relate to a non-believer that you just, it's almost like we're apologizing for God. You know, I'm really sorry that Jesus is the only way to heaven or, you know, I'm so sorry that, you know, that they're suffering in the world. If it was me and I was God and I put this thing wrapped up in a bow, it wouldn't be there. And so it's almost like we're apologizing and saying, oh, but you need to believe in this God. Well, why? We just apologized for him. <laughs> so that's a little bit how it went. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, you, you raise a really good point there about communication. I mean, communication is in everything. It's important. Sure, but I think yeah. that the the way people go about that is, man, there, there's so many different approaches. And I think the truth is you need different types of messengers for different types of people. There's not a single approach that works for everybody. Um, I think the reason why people do take that kind of, I don't know what you would call it, the a, approach almost sort of through apology is the desire to meet people where they are. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who is a, a non-believer or the concept of Christianity or perhaps religion as a whole is just very foreign to them, or they just think that it's a bunch of fairy tales or whatever it is, you tend to, you know, th th there's a there's a sort of halfway approach. There's a there's a Goldilocks zone in the approach, right? If you just come with full on, you know, preaching as if you're preaching to someone who already is uh, already is a believer and making certain points and speaking in a certain way, it can certainly be very off-putting to people because mm -hmm. the gap, the gap is too big. They don't even know what you're, they don't even know what you're talking about, That's right. but you also have to be careful of not being apologetic in that sense or diluting, let's say like diluting the word to the point that it's doesn't even mean anything or to the point that it can even potentially be heretical because you are trying so hard to conform to the world that you kind of forget about the word and there's mm. this sort of balancing act to be had and i think it's certainly easier doing it one-on-one -on -one, but i think if the larger the audience the harder it's always going to be it, it's it's at the point where i mean it's interesting with what you do i'd be curious to know your take on this because obviously with the work you do with your your youtube channel and your writing you're you're writing you're writing and speaking to to a large audience and it's hard to know how to tailor an, a message for such a large audience because everyone's in a different everyone's in a different place. If you're just mm. talking to a single friend, I find that it's easier, much easier to have those conversations and to answer questions and to deal with challenges and pushbacks and all that kind of thing. But when you're talking to tens, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people simultaneously, yeah, good point. That's not one. Yeah, that's not one conversation. That's like, you know, 100,000 conversations happening at once. And yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. As someone who essentially communicates for a living, it's something that I find a challenge in, in everything I do, just knowing how mm. to how to put my message across in a way that is effective and it's sort of kind, compassionate and open and sensible enough 
to be understood by most people, but I'm also not watering it down so much that I'm not saying anything essentially mm -hmm. in an order in order to kind of try to appease people or avoid mm -hmm. potential offense or avoid being taken the wrong way. So how do you manage that communication? Well, I think you're on to something. I mean, you know, how we package truth. I mean, the truth doesn't change, but uh, we want people to digest it. Uh, and how we package it, you know, makes a difference. And I think that we have to be aware of the context that we're in. Uh, that's really important. So uh, the interesting point, though, that you make is when you're dealing with YouTube and stuff, you're in a multi-context situation. Um, I do think that there's probably a syncing up of the context as it, it relates to how we communicate because we are learning from each other through different contexts. And so there's sort of this macro understanding of things that maybe we didn't have when we were in our silos in a pre-social media world. Uh, so I do think that there can be some givens, but I, I think that what people will appreciate for, from any communicator uh, is just authenticity, a, a desire to be vulnerable, uh, to a willingness to share our own weaknesses, uh, to recognize that we don't have it all figured out, um, to be fair with our presentation. Uh, and to be fair means that we share accurately alternative viewpoints when we're sharing those, or we are honest about a particular doctrinal stance where we're not trying to indoctrinate people to see things our way, but we're saying, Hey, you know what? There's three or four primary ways that scholars look at this and here's how they, you know, address option A, B, C, and D. So I think people will appreciate that more than just the bold dogmatism. A bold dogmatism can grow a channel, uh, but you're just going to preach to the choir and so it's my concern when I'm going back and forth sometimes between like a, like liberal news and conservative news. I'm thinking you're just preaching to the choir. If we're ever going to figure this, this unity thing out, we're going to have to learn to speak, not at the choir. Anybody can get the amens from the people that agree with. We're going to have to figure out how to listen to each other without compromise. But we can compassionately realize that there are people that have different opinions and I think that's another thing too. People that have different opinions than we do, Zuby. I think for me, as a pastor of Image Church, you know, I end every service with Q and A, live Q and A, about fifteen to twenty minutes. And I often say to the church, we have to realize that people that are coming here have all been shaped by their pain, their traumas, their books they've read, their experience, their coaches, their parents their friends, the context that they live in, their beliefs. We can't expect just because they showed up at our church one Sunday that they can come to a membership the next week and they're just going to be perfectly aligned with us. It took time to shape who these people are that are coming to us. And we have to be patient as we work together to help us to all align to what God would have us to align to. Mm -hmm. You wear a lot of different hats, Bobby. As I mentioned before, you've written multiple books. You have a large and growing YouTube channel. You obviously are a 
pastor. I'm sure you, you know, you, you do speaking. Which of them, which of these mediums, two questions, which, which do you find most enjoyable and why, and which do you find most difficult and why? Mm, that's a good question. So what I really love is I actually am a host of a nationally syndicated radio show called Pastor's Perspective. And I've got my co-host, Brian Broderson, uh, who brought me on to do this with him as an apologist. And what I love about this is it's you're live in a hot seat uh, for an hour and people call up and we do this, you know, four hours a week and you're just talking to people and you're answering questions and they're throwing questions at you. Hey, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse two, uh, or hey, uh, you know, what is the difference between Islam and Buddhism or whatever? You know, it's this kind of stuff. Or my son uh, just came out uh, as homosexual and he's getting married. And he wants me to go to the wedding. What should I do? So you're you're dealing with a lot of real stuff. And um, it just helps me to remember that questions are formed by people. And when we remember that in giving our answer, then we'll remember that we're dealing with a person created in God's image versus just cramming doctrine down their throat. So I enjoy the connection opportunity for that. Um, I think that the part that can be most challenging sometimes is just uh, for me, honestly, uh, I can struggle with just mental health stuff um, and it can make any of it challenging. Um, I, I, I can struggle. I mean, I have to, I, I have bouts of depression that get pretty dark sometimes, Zuby. And, mm -hmm. and I hate it. Um, you know, I talked about getting clean. I stayed clean for 23 years out of a dark spot of depression. I had a relapse over five years ago. It was short lived. Uh, you know, I haven't had a sip in over five years. Um, and, because for me to drink, I know it, it, it will kill me if, if I, if I, if I pick that back up and stay on that. Um, but it's hard because, you know, I, I wish I could say being a Christian just is all I'm on a spiritual high all the time. And I wish I could say that prayer was just incredible and amazing all the time. Like I value prayer and, and sometimes I have a spiritual buzz, but sometimes, you know what, you're, you're sitting in emptiness and you don't sense the Lord's presence quick enough. And I have to fight off those temptations not to anesthetize myself. Uh, and that's not always easy. And so that leaves me with fears sometimes like, wow, I just turned 50 and I'm thinking, okay, I've jacked my life up on multiple occasions already. How in the world could I potentially live another 50 years without going off the deep end? So then I get overwhelmed by my finitude and I get overwhelmed by the clock thinking, how do I make the most of life? And I want to love the Lord. I want to be faithful with all my heart. And yet I grapple with my own weakness and, and fallibility. And so yeah. I think that that can make anything that I do hard when I start getting depressed and can't get out of bed, man. I, and I hate it. And sometimes people could look at it and go, well, you just need to snap out of it, bro. I'm going, okay, that's easy to say, but that's mm -hmm. looking at somebody thinking if they were just like you, this is what they should do. But no one's just like you. We're all different. And if you had my makeup and the things I've read and the experiences I had and my mental health, you might struggle too. And so it just helps create compassion to remember where people are at.
Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that after getting married and starting a family and walking in the faith for quite some time, you had a time period where you said you almost became an apostate. What was it that caused that? And how did you how did yeah. you get through that period? So I'll say, you know, like denominations are just different sized boxes that tell you how large or small Christianity is. And one of the things that can be dangerous, I think, Zuby, is if you get into a small box community with a long doctrinal list, for example, if you're analytical, you know, a creative type, a, a thinker, what can happen is, is you can accept that box early on, but down the road, you can feel like you're pinched or suffocating. And for me, I went off to a Bible college and I felt like it was kind of a really black and white. Here's the way to see things. Here's the long doctrinal list. And, you know, I was ignorant when I got saved. So I signed off on that. But what ends up happening is, is for example, somebody gets saved. They go to a church and the church says, okay, we're going to read King James only. We're going to be a pre-trib, young earth. Uh, you're only going to, uh, you know, do A, B, C. And he goes, goes on and on. And they don't tell you that there's other options out there. Well, what ends up happening is you commit to those viewpoints early on, but then you start learning about these alternative viewpoints down the road. Oh, wait, no one told me about that. No one told me about that. Well, then that can start to make you suspicious if you go through that enough. And so that kind of process was happening in my own life. And then, you know, I was struggling in seminary, reading the gospel side by side, looking at what were you know, apparent contradictions and how do I resolve these things? I was doing you know, a, a lot of world travel and thinking, okay, so are these people just permanently hosed because they never got the information piece on Jesus? And so I had to really deal with this stuff and it was eating me up. But the beautiful thing was I didn't see it. It, it, it was the doubt that was the making of an apologist. Uh, because Jesus can discern the difference between a sincere doubter and a skeptical doubter, between one who wants to doubt to move beyond their faith and one who has doubts, but they want to get rid of them so they can go deeper into their faith. And so I wasn't looking to be a progressive Christian. I hated my doubts. In fact, I, I ended up in the counseling office on antidepressants. Uh, I had suicidal ideation. And the reason that I was so wrecked by my doubts is because I was so in love with Jesus and to think that I had been duped was absolutely uh, earth shattering to me. And I started panicking about it, but God would eventually lead me through and I would come out because I thought through the answers. But the way out of this uh, dark night of the soul wasn't reading another book, because for every book that I read to, you know, nail down one set of doubts that I had, I would collect another set of doubts. So I had to learn how to live with unanswered questions. And I learned had to, and, and what I would do is I would envision, okay, so what if I was to become a Muslim? What kind of doubts would I inherit? Or what if I was an atheist? What kind of doubts would I inherit? So say, okay, the atheist says, man, you know, if God's good, he wouldn't allow suffering. Okay. So I'm going to leave Christianity, go into atheism. And now I can say, now I don't have a God that allowed all this suffering. Okay. But then what do I have on atheism? Well, I have no God that gives ultimate justice. So while on atheism, you might struggle with the idea that God didn't do, uh, didn't operate in a justly manner on time. 
Well, on atheism, you have no ultimate justice. So on Christianity, Hitler's not judged according to atheists quick enough, but at least on Christianity, Hitler's ultimately judged, whereas on atheism, he's not. So I would start doing this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, when all was said and done, I concluded Christianity still makes sense. It doesn't uh, mean I don't have questions, but I would end up writing, does Christianity still make sense? Because I believe that in light of the other alternatives, it makes the best sense of the worldview options. Mm, That's that's such a powerful point, because I think that if you are someone who is very high in being inquisitive, if you are someone who's intellectually curious, this is, and you're a critical thinker, I think that's something that can cause an interesting, I think for a lot of people, it can cause a schism when it comes to, when it comes to their faith. I think the sort of easiest way to, you, you could argue the easiest way to sort of be and stay religious is to just isolate yourself and not do too much thinking and not think too critically and not be, not have the intellectual curiosity to explore other um, other religions or um, to sort of put your brain into the you know, sort of mind of, of, of an atheist and to ask all these questions. It's kind of easier to, to do that. But I think that it sounds like what happened with you is you were put into a situation or a congregation where that's kind of what they wanted to do, right? Like just stay in this box. Don't Don't ask too many questions. Don't think too much. Just kind of accept this. And if you are very high in intellectual curiosity, which you obviously are, there's going to come a point where you're like, well, what about this? What about that? What about <laughs> right, that? And, yeah. and, and, if the, and if the response to that is just shut up, stop asking questions, it makes people more skeptical. That's and right. then I, th- I think a lot of people go through this sort of deconstruction process where it's like, hey, well, I'm not getting the answers, so I'm now going to ask even more. It's it's not dissimilar to how some people go down like really far deep in the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. I, th- I say that conspiracy theorists are primarily caused by the lack of honesty and integrity in mm. mainstream media and politics and so on. Because mm-hmm. again, if you're intellectually yeah. curious, you're like, wait, this doesn't, this story you've told me doesn't make sense. What about this? What about that? What about this? So people start coming up with their own their own theories and their own explanations and start and you know sometimes it's reasonable but it can kind of go very far down this rabbit hole to the point where someone doesn't believe anything they see anything they hear any individual and they're just there trying to sort of work out everything from the ground up again so i can i can i can understand how that happens and i think it's i think a lot of people are uncomfortable with saying they don't understand everything Mm-hmm. Um, or that they don't know the answer to everything. Um, and it's kind of interesting because, of course, we use the word faith and belief, which in itself is suggesting that, look, they're, they're, if someone, if, if an atheist comes up to me and, you know, they want, they want, you know, absolute scientific proof that God exists or that, you know, Jesus exists, like, it, it's almost like asking the wrong question because it's like, well, I mean, I can't give you, I can't give you evidence in the way you're looking for it, mm-hmm. right? Not in the way that I can, you know, like the two plus two equals four kind of things, right? If someone asks me, oh, well, what about this? What about that? Like, I can answer some questions, but there's there's that level of humility where I'm like, man, like, I don't know 
I don't know. I, I, can, I cannot give you sort of hard documented evidence of exactly what of what happens um, after we die. I can tell you what I believe. Mm-hmm. I can tell you my faith, but I, I cannot tell you like with and, and it's interesting because this can also cause problems even amongst believers. I've had criticism even online. Um, I had a I had a video where I was on a podcast and I was um, I essentially de- described myself as uh, someone was asking about my religious faith. And, you know, I, I explained it and everything. And I said, look, but ultimately, I describe myself as a humble believer, meaning that I can entertain other ideas I, I, and other concepts and so on. I can say, this is what I believe mm-hmm. and this is why I believe it. But I, I don't have like people want me to say and sort of the, right, the, the, the way that would get me the most claps from the Christian audience yeah. would be to say that I never have I don't have any questions. My faith is 100%. I know this is absolutely true, whatever. And I'm just like, look, from, from an intellectual honesty perspective, I cannot, I cannot say that in good faith. I cannot say I know one million. And, and then it's, it's interesting because then that gets criticism because it's like, oh, you know, you're weak in your faith or you're doubting yeah. this, you're doubting. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm just being intellectually, I'm being intellectually honest. I cannot mm-hmm. say something that like every day. And I, and I think, Man, I, I just think, look, if, if you're an intellectual person and you are a person of faith, you will have you will have moments of doubt. You will have moments of question. You will have things you're like, hmm, this seems like a little bit of a contradiction. How do I thread this needle? I don't totally understand this passage. I don't get quite right. Like there's so the world is so complex. Mm-hmm. The world is so complicated. And there are so many perceived injustice, not perceived, there are genuine injustices. There's right. things that don't quite, quite balance. It's like, why, why does that happen? You know, why should a child suffer and die? Like, why should, why should, why should, a you know, like, I don't know. Why are some children born stillborn? Like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. Right. Mm. So um, does all that make me go, oh, yep. You know, religion is a scam. <laughs> there's no, there's no Jesus. There's no God. No, no, that's not my, that's not yeah. my conclusion. But I can honestly look at these things and go, man, like, you know, that is, that is kind of confusing. That is that is quite sure. strange. That that is that is a challenge, and um, yeah, I think mm. that's kind of where I think people go down different paths when it yeah, comes you know, to, when it comes to that. What you're saying, Zuby. I mean, I appreciate that. Just hearing from you in that way, um, I think that those that would criticize you that then. Uh, in the name of just trust the Bible, I would say, well, then trust the, what the Bible says in the book of Jude when it says, be merciful to those who doubt. <laughs> so if Zuby has a couple doubts, uh, instead of, you know, shell shocking them, uh, just be merciful to him. Uh, Jesus was merciful to John the Baptist. Uh, I mean, John the Baptist, obviously, uh, you know, he struggled with fashion issues. Uh, He went out and yelled at people in the middle of the wilderness. He had a weird diet. Our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the wellness company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike Support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. 
Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. Uh, and when he was in the middle of thinking he might get decapitated, he has a bout with doubt. And what does he do? Well, he sends his disciples off with his doubts to go find out if Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you can imagine the disciples walking and going, gee, are you sure, Mr. John? I thought you told us he was the Messiah. Yeah, just do a double check, if you will. I'm not sure if I'm going to get decapitated here, and I'd like just some assurance. So anyone can be bold uh, when they're out in the free public space. But when you are on arrest, and then what happens? They show up, they interrupt Jesus' message. Jesus receives uh, the news. And uh, he says, he starts to operate like a Christian apologist, right? He says, go tell John that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. In other words, he gives them evidence that this stuff's happening, offers them evidence to take back to John that the Messiah that is spoken about in the Old Testament has truly arrived. And all that to say, Jesus can handle our doubts. Uh, he, he can handle our doubts. Thomas had doubts. Uh, you know, it's and Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. But even this coffee cup right here that I hold in my hand, I, I just started coming to the end of myself in this way. I started thinking, okay, I mean, just even take this coffee cup. I can never get to the bottom of this coffee cup. I mean, what temperature was it baked at? Uh, what type of p- white paint was used on it? Who was the person that applied it? How many machines has this been in? How many mouths have drank from this cup? How many ounces have been in this cup throughout its lifetime? Uh, what type of fluid has been in this cup more than any other type of fluid? Um, how long will this cup last? Um, how many different items was this cup before it was a cup? <laughs> and so I'm sitting there going, I can't, I can't even figure this cup out. And I'm trying to f- figure out like God, I mean, we need to realize that there is going to be some mystery here. Mm. Do you think that it's, um, I mean, I, I guess the answer to this is yes, but you can obviously expand on it based on the title of your book and your YouTube channel. Um, but do you think it's harder? Do you think it's getting harder to be a Christian in the Western world? Hmm. Well, one thing that encouraged me after I was struggling with discouragement is, you know, it, it's a tough time watching what's happening to Christianity on so many fronts. It's It's just went off the deep end uh, in a lot of ways, theologically, morally, mm. um, you have apostasy. When, 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 when you say that, can you be, can you be specific when you say it's gone off the deep end? Yeah. Um, well, I do think that we're in a time where you've seen a lot of people move toward a progressive Christianity, uh, that is denying some of the core doctrines. I think that when it comes to morally, we're, sort of adopting the culture's morals as it relates to, you know, hey, well, you know what? Jesus doesn't really care about our sex life, Um, you know, and so all of a sudden we start modifying what the Bible has to say on critical areas or, you know what, maybe Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, Um, you know, and so all of a sudden we're starting to lower the moral standard and and it kind of works like this. Um, There was a time the culture used to share the values of the church but now it doesn't. And so now the people have to pay a price to be a part of a church. And so people are leaving. So it's kind of like the, the, the culture 
and the church were in alignment. But then the way it starts to work is at first you reject, say, a moral issue. Then you start to tolerate it. Then you accept it. Then you celebrate it. Then you reject those who don't get in line. And so you can take many of the moral issues, take, you know, the idea of homosexuality that would have been rejected by culture and the church. Then it was tolerated. Then it was celebrated or accepted. Then it was celebrated. And now if you don't celebrate it, you're going to be rejected. And I think that that process is happening a lot in our culture. And I understand why the confusion social media has made it more difficult. We live in a melting pot culture of beliefs. We're disillusioned with a lot of the ministry leaders who are falling out. Uh, there, there, there's some difficulties taking place, no doubt. The Bible does warn of this kind of time that we're going to live in, though, and we need to encourage ourselves with that. But I think the way I encourage myself through some of the discouragement is Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what that tells me is the true church is not shrinking. It's actually growing. Uh, it might look like it's shrinking, but really what's shrinking is a lot of false believers or people who weren't really believers are leaving because the church is being pruned, but it's now an opportunity for the real bride of Christ to stand up. And so I think that one wave is leaving now because the culture is starting to reject the church. It's no longer cool and popular to be in it. So that wave's leaving. But I think another wave of people will leave once the church has to pay a persecuted price for believing. And I don't think it's completely pruned. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. suffering seems to be the tool to show and reveal the real bride of Christ. Where, where do you see Christianity in, you can answer either for the, for the USA where you're based or perhaps the English speaking Western world in general, the Anglosphere, where, where do you see it going over the next century? We're, we're currently in the first quarter yeah. of a new century. Where, where do you see it going over the next few decades? Do you think it's going to reach a point? I mean, you brought up, you brought up the word persecution. We know that you know, Christians in churches are, are persecuted in many parts of the world. My family is originally from Nigeria, of course, in northern Nigeria. Christian persecution to the point of massacres and mm. things like that. And, you know, like it's... It's awful. I don't think that in the West it's noticed that much or discussed that much. But, you know, Christianity is the most persecuted religion worldwide, even though from our vantage point, that doesn't seem like it. In fact, people in the West are there saying mm -hmm. that it's Christians who are persecuting, uh, you know, doing the persecuting and so on. But where, where do you think it goes? Do you think that you move to a point where even Western churches and Western Christians are being persecuted? Do you see that there's going to be some type of uh, Christian re revival or renaissance where a lot of agnostics and non-believers actually start to pivot as they see the world and their nations becoming increasingly dark and they themselves don't know why and they start leaning more into it. I don't know. These are these are just ideas I'm throwing out right. there, but I'm curious as to if you have any sort of insights or sort of hypotheticals yeah. of where you think it's going to go in the 2030s, 2040s, you know, I don't know, up until the year 2100. Yeah. Boy, I mean, that that is a that is a a prophetic question, Zuby, and I think, you know, sometimes 
the best we can do uh, is to think about the past. Uh, but then when you think about the past, um, we're dealing with some something a little bit new under the sun and that's social media. So sometimes we say, there's nothing new under the sun. We get the principle and that's true in principle, but it's not always exactly spot on. Uh, I mean, there was a time when it was new under the sun to send somebody to the moon, right? Uh, this is new right now, the social media and what it's going to mean. I I would say that, yes, I do believe there could be a revival and, and an awakening. Uh, but the the way it looks as uh, to me is I think it, the night gets darker before the light emerges. Uh, I think that before there's true revival, I think that there um, is reformation. You think about the reformation preceded the revivals uh, in the 18th century. Uh, like if, if we just got a big revival with the theological and moral mess that we're in, and we all just caught a spiritual buzz without reform, right? I think that the revival would come out of some sort of reforming. So I, I, I write in the final chapter actually in the appendix of my book, I lay out a vision for what the church could look like in the future. And basically a, a plea for a new reformation where I'm saying, what could a new reformation look like? And I talk about Luther pinning his 95 thesis on the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517, uh, that would spark the reformation. Well, what, well, I don't think we need a 95 thesis, but we do need some sort of we need, we need to know where the real bride is. We need to find, we need our best and gifted leaders to network us together. We probably need a confession of some sort that allows us to move into the future, kind of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you know, you could hail Hitler and hail the cross in church as long as you honored the state. Uh, and then you had people like Niemöller and uh, you had Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you had Karl Barth. They were part of the confessor church and they were calling people. They were recognizing that danger is coming to Germany and they could see it and they could see that they were going to be forced to live a certain way. And you had a lot of people go the way of the state and they had their state church and they compromised. But you had Bonhoeffer, who would eventually be hung for his faith, uh, and they they created their confession and they were the they were the confessors, the confessing church. I think we need leaders like Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth, and we need people to come together and rally us together. And we need to be able to sign off on something so we know who's the true bride, uh, because there's so much confusion inside the church right now. Like we don't even know how many people in our church have really bought into the cultural agenda, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, we don't know how many people are actually still polluting the church just in there, sticking around to do that. So I think that we have some purging still to do uh, in the name of reformation. And then out of that reformation, I could see revival someday. That's kind of what I would feel in my gut. Um, I think as it relates to the truck, the struggles that we have coming, uh, we owe it to our flocks to start preparing them for a wartime mentality to what it means to mm. carry a cross. We have, we have misled people. And when you give people a church that's an entertainment focused church, and as long as the culture likes church, that's great. But when the culture doesn't like church, then the church leaves the church and goes finds their entertainment in the culture. 
And we have to yes. call people and be honest about what it means to truly follow Jesus. And we need to live in this world unashamed of the gospel with humility. Uh, we need to welcome people's questions. And I think that we need to do something about this young generation. They need to be discipled. They're bought hook, line, and sinker into critical race theory, to Marxism. They've bought into the moral relapse of the culture. And we need to raise them up. And we need to let them know of safe spaces, like true safe spaces, not where they can color with a coloring book because they can't handle an idea, but a safe space where they can know that they got other Christians that will stand with them. Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring up those other ideologies because it's not really, I've said before that I think we live in one of the most godless times in modern history, but one of the most religious. I don't really think that people are losing religion or the religious urge. They're just buying into these sort of secular ideologies, which are supplanting and taking the place Mm -hmm. of what used to be religious faith. Like when you see these critical theorists or, you know, the people who have totally bought into all of the woke platforms, whether it's the race stuff, the gender stuff, the transgender stuff, the whatever it is, they're more religious than I am in a certain way. And when I say that, I don't mean in terms of belief in God. I mean, like zealotry to be, you know, dedicating black and white. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Black and white fundamental. Hype. Yes non-gracious, hyper-intolerant of anyone who deviates even slightly from the things that they believe in. Yeah, it's so there's something very fascinating that is going on there. Um, What do you think? I have an idea about this, but what do you think is the greatest? What do you think is the greatest threat to Christianity or or to the church? Hmm. You know, when I hear the word uh, greatest, as you know, Zubi, that, that's always tough, right? Uh, but I'm not sure I could say no. I mean, I, I think the evil one, spiritual warfare, you know, living like as if we're not in the midst of a battle, thinking that our battles against flesh and blood. I think that there's a spiritual component that is a threat that 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 we need to be aware of uh, that works in mysterious ways. Uh, but I do think um the type of things that i sense as threats that are weakening the church is moral and doctrinal compromise uh for sure um and i think when it comes to like the lgbtq deal um i i I think that in a lot of ways the church has been love shamed because i think you can agree I th- or I think you can accept somebody without agreeing with somebody. But today we're being mandated to agree to show we accept. But we don't do that with other things like you like with our music choice or with our movie choice or with what art we like. But in this we're saying you have to agree with me or you don't accept me. And the problem is is identity when you reduce your identity down to your sexual preferences, which is way too limited of an identity, then you have to reject those who don't agree with you because you don't feel like you can be, you know, something like you don't feel like you have a sense of self. And what Christians have to offer is such is such a bigger identity than just who we have sex with. 
but we are such a sex obsessed culture. We we're so passionate about our genitals. It's unbelievable. Like it, it, we are a genitally <laughs> driven culture, right? I mean, it's just, it's all about our genitals and genital expression. And I'm like, do we just stop? And you know, I don't, and I don't even believe the whole, I don't believe that if I, if I just said, excuse me for a second, Zuby, and I went and I don't, I don't mean this in a mean way. I'm just saying, if I went and put a dress on and came back and said, man, somehow or another, all of a sudden I believe I'm a woman. I do not think anybody would truly believe that I'm a woman just because I said, pause for a second. And then I went and put a dress on, came back and made this announcement. Mm -hmm. I don't think we believe it, but what I do think is we fear so much being rejected or being canceled by the culture Mm. that I think cancel culture is one of the greatest threats of our day because it's creating a fear inside of us that has made us mum. We won't speak up. Everybody's yes. out of the closet except the Christian. <laughs> yes. And um, I've said before that cancel culture only works in conjunction with cowardice culture. Mm. Wow. That's if really you, good. Yes. If people have courage, mm -hmm. then cancel culture becomes completely impotent. If people have individual courage, if people have the courage to stand by their employee or friend or coworker or colleague who people are attempting to cancel, then it doesn't work. Mm. If someone tries to cancel someone off of social media and the people who run the platforms have the courage to say, no, actually, we are going to support free speech and we're going to allow this person to speak, then, then it doesn't work. The only reason cancel culture has been effective, particularly over the past decade, is because of cowardice. It's because of mass cowardice and people really just saying, cool. I'm sure you've seen all of these situations where, you know, there's many, man, there's been so many dozens of high profile incidents where let's say a celebrity makes a statement that is simply true, right? They, 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 they make a statement that is true. It's a, you know, a, a quote unquote, what I call a hate fact, right? It's something that is, that's true, but you're not meant to say it. It's a bit outside the Overton window. The culture doesn't like it. And then, um, you know, the cancel mob comes for them. And then, you know, one day later, two days later, they're there making a groveling apology, you know, that they did something horrible or said something terrible when, when they quite literally said nothing, they did nothing wrong to begin with. They said nothing wrong to begin with. And that sends a chill signal that tells mm. everyone else, you know, it's like taking a scalp and holding it up and saying, look, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't get in line, if you don't go along with these agendas. Mm. Um, I do think that I often say that I think, um, I've said in numerous podcasts now that I think we we reached peak woke 2021-2022 and now I think that the uh the pendulum is coming back. I don't know if we've reached the peak of the of the goofiness and the indoctrination efforts, but I think we've passed the peak of the tolerance of it. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that from 2012 to 2022 there was a mostly unopposed run of a lot of this this basket of ideologies that it's funny that I can say woke and people know what I'm talking about, right? The basket of <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, 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 yeah, like the basket of goods, critical race theory, uh, socialism, transgender ideology, um, extreme sort of fourth wave feminism, like this whole basket, all the oppressor versus victim narratives, you know, white people bad, black people oppressed, you know, all, all this very simplified, these simplified worldviews, uh, Marxism 3.0. Yeah. But I'm seeing now more than ever, you know, people just like just tired of it. Just just people being like, you know what? Like, I'm tired of the attempted division of you know people by their race. I'm tired of the obsession with 
pushing, trying to ram transgenderism down everyone's throats and trying to push it on children. Yeah. I'm tired of men and women's sports. I'm tired of, you know, I think, I think people Exhausting, are just, yeah, yeah, yeah pe people are just fed up with it. And I think also people have realized that because it all came under the banner of compassion and kindness. This was the Trojan horse, yeah. right? It was like, this hey, actually, the Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, you know what, if, if you are, if you are a man, and you're a good person and you're compassionate, you know, you have to accept these elements of feminism. If you're, um, if you're a white person and you don't want to be called racist and you want to be a good person, you know, you must support BLM and you need to, uh, you know, adopt the worldview of Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi. And you need to like accept your, that you're just, you're just an, you're just an oppressor and you now yeah. need to sort of atone for it. So on. And so like, just, it's like for each demographic, they have a story that they've sold. And I think more and more people are just like, you know what? This isn't helpful. This is not helping anyone. Mm -mm. Things are not actually getting better. Things, things are not, when you look at each of these aspects, whether it's uh, the dynamics between men and women, whether this is um, how well people of political stripes get along with each other, whether this is how well people of different races, ethnicities get on with each other, how much, you know, how, how, how much do Americans feel like they have in common with each other? All of these things, I would wager that if you did a, an accurate poll, they've all regressed over the past decade, mm -hmm. right? I think we reached a point in, I often say that I think the, I say humanity peaked like in the 1990s or early 2000s because it's like you've equalized the playing field. You've gotten rid of like the most extreme elements of like genuine bigotry and all of these isms and phobias and, you know, real harsh, unpleasant treatment of people just based on, their identity or immutable characteristics or whatever you've equalized the law everybody you know it like there, there there was this sort of 15 to 20 year period where i think it was really good and then in the past decade it was like the the train just went past the station <laughs> and it just yeah. it, it just it just it just overcorrected they didn't know where to stop and now it's like now you're stoking tension again across all of these different things and of course as you said you know you reduce people to it's typically, I, I think it's even strange the the three things that it usually is, because it, it it always seems to be race, gender, and sexuality. Those mm -hmm. seem to be the three, like when even people talk about diversity, those seem to be the three things that are always focused on, right? So what's true. your gender? What's your sexuality? And what's your what's your race or ethnicity? And it's just that's it, right? It's not height, it's not eye color, it's not hair color. Like, there's all these other things that you they yeah, could have used. Yeah, you could pick, yeah. But yeah, th th what's interesting as well is you don't even hear much about talk of class anymore, right? It's not even sort of like upper class and working class yeah. and middle class or whatever. It's just kind of like, well, this is your skin color, so we're putting you in that box. Oh, okay, you're heterosexual. All right, you're somehow, you're somehow uh, you know, that's, that's privilege points. Oh, you're in fact, it's, it's, it's gone so extreme, it's gone so extreme that it doesn't even really matter if you're gay anymore. It's like, you have to be trans now, right? Yeah. If you're just like a norm, if you're kind of like a straight gay white man, it's like, you're probably still an oppressor. Like now yeah. you have to sort of be trans to, I, I don't know, but I, you I have to identify as a, as a, as a dog or something uh, to, to really <laughs> up the ante at some point. I mean, it is, it's off the, it, it's a stupid, it's dumb. It's like, I, yeah. that's where I think we need to call this out. It doesn't even make sense. Right. I mean, it's nonsensical. <laughs> Yeah, and I th I think uh, that that actually gives me hope. I, I I think that it's it's really exhausted. I think it's truly exhausted its steam, and I think that yeah. the fact that it's been pushed so much on children, 
and I think now that the now that adults are aware of this, because if you talked about some of this stuff like in 2015, 2016, people would deny that it was even happening. People are like, well, I haven't seen it, so it's not a real thing. And some of it sounds so absurd that it's hard to believe. If I'm like, hey, like, you know, there's men saying that they're women and whooping them in their sports, you'd be like, come on, man. Like, that's that's not real. Like that. Right. That sounds it sounds too silly to be real. And then people see it and it's like, oh, wow, this is happening and it keeps happening. Like I have friends who have daughters and their own daughters have had to come up against boys in sports like it's 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 hit home and they're just like okay no abs absolutely not like whatever the heck this thing is we need to we need to nip this in the bud we cannot be so tolerant that we like deny reality that you can go and power lift and and win the the girls competition (laughs) and (laughs) it's crazy man but but you know that was five that was five years ago and mm-hmm. if I think of when when I posted that five years ago, people were not it, not a lot of people were talking about it. Yeah. And now it's very much on people's radar, and there's such a strong pushback. In fact, various federations and sports organizations have finally drawn the line and saying, you know what, we're not allowing this. Like, if you were born a male, you can't just come in and compete with compete with the women. So um, I, I'm seeing some positive signs that some of this sociocultural um, sort of pendulum swing has sort of maximized at the goofiness level and is now we're coming back to like a sort of healthy medium where people can, I don't know, maybe now people can just fight over immigration and tax rates or something. In the, yeah. You know, Zuby, with what you're saying too, cause I think this is it's a good conversation to have. I mean, I'm encouraged from the fact that you're encouraged because I think that we have to recognize that maybe there are some positive uh, signs of resistance that are starting to happen too. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, you're asking, Oh, what is a dangerous threat? And I, and I talked about the spiritual aspect of just being aware. And then I said, I think we've been love shamed in a sense by the LGBT. And I think if you think about it, like this is, could be Satan's most powerful tool is to use the church's most powerful tool against them. So we're called to love the world, Right and go out and, you know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what we're told is that we don't love people if we don't agree with them. So Mm. of course we don't want people to think we don't love them. So what does the church do? A lot of people. Okay. I agree with you then if that's what it means to love you. And so we've bought into that. And I think we've got duped on it because I don't think it's, it's not a fair Here's the thing that I hate. Like there are people that could listen to the way I'm I'm sharing right now. And and because of the way that they've defined what it is to be loved, they would say that I hate them. And I'm going, I don't, I don't believe that at all. Like, I mean, I went, went out to California recently and I took out a, a trans man. I took him out to dinner and we hung out. We had a great time. We stay in touch. I, I try to proactively build relationships with people that are different than me. And he would not say, or she would not say, uh, whatever someone's going to feel most comfortable with, that that there's hate in my heart in this relationship. Not at all, because we spend time, we'll talk, we we'll send things back and forth. Uh, but I think it's 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 so we're we're not even looking at the truth. We're just throwing statements out there, and we're we're editing people's words and just saying hate 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 to drive an agenda of of all this stuff. And I think we just need to learn to slow down and listen and be okay with people like having different opinions and having, 
different voices. It's okay. Like, and I go, I go, what do people have to be fearful of Jesus about? Like, like what, what, are, what are we so scared of the Christian about? Like what, what does Jesus offer? Well, he offers to forgive us for everything we've ever done wrong. Uh, he offers us a relationship. He offers us heaven. What are people scared about Christians for? I mean, what are, what are Christians called to do? Well, we're called to be honest. To, uh, we're called to not lie to you. We're called to not cheat on you. We're called to be hardworking in the workplace. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be servants. We're called to be selfless. We're called to consider you better than ourselves. Like, like you say, you go, what, why are people so, what do they, what do they have to worry against the Christian? That's our calling. Mm-hmm. So I just think that the church has been painted as something. Here's the interesting thing. It, the culture now thinks that the only thing left to be saved now is the church. And we need to rescue them with the gospel of LGBTQ. We need to rescue them with the gospel of critical theory, with wokeism. And they need to realize that they're enslaved and we need to get them to swallow the pill of our enlightenment so that they could wake up. Otherwise, we're going to show the law on them and we're going to cancel them because what cancel culture is, is law-based living. What Christianity is, is grace-based living. And the law can't handle grace. And we're seeing the contrast in black and white right now. Man, you, you raised so many interesting points there. When it comes to that idea of hate, I mean, number one is I think that, that word is often just just weaponized, right? It's just a way to kind of hit people with this stick, accuse them of some type of bigotry and get them to shut up um, yep. or to put them on the defensive. But I think also what happens that I, I don't know, actually, no, I, I think... Um, Carl Truman writes about this a book, but in his book, uh, "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self," mm, where he talks about you know we're living in the time of expressive individualism. So, I think that what happens is identity and behavior are often conflated when that's not the case, right? So, if you don't agree with some aspects of someone's behavior, they might have wrapped their whole identity in those behaviors, mm-hmm. and so therefore that disapproval they want to call hate right so they they don't they're not separating that you can you know be kind to and loving of and accommodating and civil towards a person right towards a person towards a sinner towards someone who 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 has a proclivity to sin but you can also say that the sin the sin is the sin but i think now by saying that it's like people want to equate that with hatred and Mm. sometimes i'm not sometimes i'm not sure if it's um a genuine misunderstanding or if it's a if it's a if it's a deception where people are pretending they 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 know that they know that it's not hatred they know that you're not you're not really this like awful hateful bigoted person who you know wants all these all these people who are in this court you know who do this or that to you know be experience something horrible or whatever it is it's just saying no um you know you can even you can even like very much like a person even be friends with someone or whatever but go hey like i don't approve i don't approve of this thing i don't approve it it's to me it's no different to like okay take an obvious example i mean if someone if you knew a person who um you know committed adultery or or cheated on their their boyfriend or their girlfriend or whatever you know was doing something like that does if you're like hey that's that's wrong and that's sinful and i i disapprove of that does that is that hate yeah is that hate is like do do i do i now hate do i hate that man or like no like that's that would be a very weird 
that it would be a very odd thing to just do like oh like yeah, that's hatred. Like, right so, so i'm just supposed we're just supposed to celebrate uh, what's what's the crazy word they use now um polyamory right like if, if we don't celebrate yeah. and support promiscuity and hookup culture then we're we're bigots like we're just supposed to hey everyone everyone just go out there and do whatever the heck you want go get drunk go do drugs go like do whatever you want as long as it's consensual and i'm supposed to are we all just supposed to like celebrate that and validate it and affirm it and say that you know if we if you're not in like i think actually most people would be like no that sounds kind of that sounds kind of crazy but then when it mm. comes to other things it's like oh well if you don't if you don't support that and promote it and celebrate it and aren't 100% behind it then you're sort of yours is you're some kind of hatred hateful bigot and it's just like no that's not that, that's not yeah, right. Yeah, and what's all. astonishing is how fast, right, Zuby? I mean, like, think, I mean, mm. Obergefell, 2015. I mean, we're, we're still under a decade. And now people's throat will get cut for not celebrating when a large portion of the culture just 10 years ago, uh, you know, would, would, wouldn't have saw it this way. And so including, that's what's amazing. In, including liberals. Including, including many liberals. liberals. Yeah. Including many liberals. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's, where's the, like, and where's the grace? Like, you know, like, and, and if you, if you really would apply the same grid, like if this is really what works, then you would, it, it, let's say you could apply this philosophy. Like the, I, I taught a course called Jesus and the moral philosophers. And what I did is I looked at the different philosophers, like, you know, Hobbes, Machiavelli, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, you know, Nietzsche, Aquinas, Aristotle. And I said, imagine, and I laid out their philosophy. And I said, now let's say you could impose Machiavellian philosophy on all the people that exist, let's say 8 billion people. What kind of world would Machiavellian philosophy produce? Or what kind of a world would, you know, a Nietzschean philosophy produce? Or what kind of a world would a, jesus philosophy produce well it's like when you think about the what if everybody would truly live like jesus it'd look a lot like heaven like if we really live that way we i mean we would forgive each other we would love each other we wouldn't be lying to each other we wouldn't be living in deception we would know what truth is we would forgive each other we wouldn't be cheating on each other uh you know it, it would just be we would be working you wouldn't need the security systems that you need you wouldn't need to be you wouldn't need to walk through airports because you're worrying about, I mean, like if we would truly live the way Jesus called us to live, that would eradicate a lot of our problems, but take Machiavelli and impose that on everybody. Well, all that to say, if you were to take this whole cancel culture mentality and overlay that as a philosophy on the whole world, well, I mean, think about how much of the world isn't even familiar with the way we do things in the West. So are we just saying that they should be muzzled too, that they should be canceled too, that are we going to say that they hate people too, because uh, their viewpoint and I go, man, we're just trying to drive an agenda that is so accelerated. And as I said, a decade ago, you had a lot of people. And as you said, even liberals who would have totally disagreed. And now all of a sudden we're so passionate to say, you don't even deserve to have a voice if you don't open your eyes quick. I don't get it. Yeah, it's a strange one, man. So, Bobby, I want to be respectful of your time. So, why can you can you summarize um, why Christianity still makes sense? Sure. To me, I think that Christianity offers the best cumulative case worldview on offer. 
So that's to say, if you were to look at the different worldviews on offer, polytheism, atheism, agnosticism, uh, or, you know, take Islam, Buddhism, you know, the different versions of atheism, uh, Christianity, I think that Christianity answers the biggest life essential questions most sufficiently uh, in a cumulative way compared to these other worldviews. But for me, I think that Christianity still makes the best sense because I can't explain the resurrection away. Uh, Paul said, if Jesus hasn't rose from the grave, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. And I've read the, you know, the so-called theories to explain the resurrection away. And those are a lot harder to believe than the truth of the resurrection. And I think that the historical case of the resurrection, it's like this. If Jesus really rose from the grave, then he really did die. And if he really did die, then he really did live. And when he really did live, he said that he was going to die and rise again. And when he really did live, he affirmed the Old Testament. And if he affirmed the Old Testament in his first coming, and then if he proved that he would die and rise again and that he did die and rise again, then I trust that in his second coming, he'll validate the process that the New Testament went through as well. So out of the resurrection, I argue back to say that Jesus, if he rose, he died. And what did he die for? He said he would die for our sins. And if he did die, he did live. And when he lived, he affirmed the Old Testament and he said he's going to come again. And so I think when he comes again, in the same way that he was able to validate the Old Testament, he'll be able to validate the New Testament. So out of the resurrection, I go backwards and I go forwards in order to remain in the present and say Christianity still makes sense. And for that, I hope people will check out my biographical apologetic uh, put out by Tim Dale coming April 24th. And it's also going to have a DVD series that I did with my Gen Z son for small groups and uh, a small group companion. It's going to be on Audible, and they can pre-order now. That's awesome. Did you narrate it yourself? I hope I so. I sure did. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. I get upset yeah. when authors don't don't narrate their own books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did for sure. Fantastic. Bobby, and where can people uh, find or follow you online? Are you on social media? Yes, they can check out um, my YouTube channel. It's uh, called Christianity Still Makes Sense. I have a podcast, Christianity Still Makes Sense. Uh, the radio show is called Pastor's Perspective. Uh, they can even see that on YouTube or on podcasts. They can just see me in a hot seat answering questions. Uh, and if they're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, it's imagechurch.live if they want to come check out our church. Awesome. Bobby, you're doing a lot, man. Keep it up. Uh, don't get discouraged. And oh, thank uh, you, respect to you. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great being with you. And keep up the great work on your show too, bro. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. 
Parker, engineering your success.